I trust your Christmas was merry. Uh, there is much to be merry about this Christmas, despite a world that's fallen apart. Been falling apart for a long time, by the way, if you weren't aware of that. But uh, it's always sustained by our Lord, and that can give us a lot of hope. Uh, So this text today uh, has everything to do with Christmas because (laughs) it's a text that reveals the Jesus who came into the world and his will for us. So uh, it is not a merry text, but it is... An essential text. So please read with me Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And these are God's words. Now, this can be a difficult passage. And it can be difficult because we're immediately distracted from the gospel writer's point by three things. Demons? Really? Aren't they the imagination, the mythological imagination of people who lived in a past age? Today, we have medical doctors and psychiatrists to explain our physical and our mental illnesses. Second, if we do accept demons are a possibility in this life, can they cause a person to be blind 
and deaf and mute. And then Jesus said that there are words we can speak about the Holy Spirit that are unforgivable. Could I have spoken these words in the past? Could I be beyond God's forgiveness? What about people I know? Now, these questions are all elements of the story before us today, but they are not the main point. The point of the story has to do with what you see and what you say when you look at Jesus. The Pharisees saw a man empowered by Satan, and they sought to persuade those who saw Jesus that this was the source of his miraculous powers. The common people who witnessed this miracle of healing were not so sure about that. They wondered if Jesus was the promised Messiah, the son of David, the prophets announced to people. So we have two groups of people who see the same miracle, the same person who brought about the miracle, but they see two different people. So we're going to move through the passage in four parts, and I'm going to put, no, maybe I'm not. I'm just going to put my Bible over here so I can see my notes. And Brandon is going to helpfully bring it near to me. Thank you, sir. Four parts, okay? And as we go through the passage, I want, I want you to think about where it leads you, and I want you to think about when you look at Jesus Christ, who do you see? So number one, we've got the miracle and the response in verses 22 to 24. The conflict in our story and the accusation made against Jesus didn't begin in this event. Jesus had been going about the cities of Galilee, teaching and performing miracles. So he'd been all over the place doing these things. And in chapter 12, verse 9, we learn that Jesus had intentionally, on the Sabbath, healed a man with a crippled hand. He did this in the synagogue. He did it in front of the Pharisees, in open defiance of what they said God required to do no work, including healing work, on the Sabbath. And so Matthew tells us how the Pharisees responded to this miracle. If you want to just look back in your page to verse 14 in chapter 12, it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. How do you destroy a person? You kill him. And so these guys are vicious. The conflict in our text began even before this day of healing, even before the healing of the man with the crippled hand. In chapter 9, verse 32, Jesus had cast out a demon of another man, this one unable to speak. The crowds marveled and the Pharisees grumbled, just like in our story today. And here's what the Pharisees said back in chapter 9. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So this is our 
the event today is not really new. This, this accusation, this slander against Jesus had been around for some time. What we have in our text today is Jesus' response to these vicious accusations. Now, it's interesting with the miracle, Jesus gives, I mean, Matthew gives us just about no details. The man was blind and mute. He's unable to see and unable to speak. Uh, It is likely he was unable to speak because he was deaf. It's assumed in the text that the man's infirmities were caused by a demon. A spiritual being who can harm people in this world. Now, in the New Testament, not all infirmities like this are described as being caused by spiritually wicked beings. So, not every sickness is identified with a demon, but this one is. Today, people don't believe in demons. Except maybe when they're watching horror movies. That's where we get demons today. Today, people think science can explain everything. But science only deals with what we can see and hear and touch and smell and measure by shape or color or weight or time. Science is all about what we as human beings can detect in this physical world. Everyone assumes you got a problem with your body, it's caused by something in your body. Makes sense, huh? But that's not what they assumed in Jesus' day. Sometimes we have physical problems and the doctors cannot figure out what the cause is. None of the tests reveal a physical source of your pain. Let's say you have searing headaches. None of the tests come back positive. None of the medicines cause any relief. And after your neurologist rules out all the causes he can think of, he suggests maybe you should see a psychiatrist. Maybe he can help you with a non-physical cause of your headaches. And so, even in modern science, we arrive at the same conclusion that people of Jesus' day came to. You can have physical problems that do not originate in physical causes. Isn't that interesting? Can't explain everything by science. So, before we move on from this, I want to ponder for a moment the event of the healing. This man has lived his life utterly dominated by his affliction. He can't do any work. Someone else must prepare his food. And then they have to put his hand on it so he can feel it, so he can eat it. He can't tell you what he needs. He must be led any place that he doesn't know by touch. So maybe he can find himself or find his way around his house, but no place else. This is not only burdensome to him. Think of the burden it is on the people who must care for him. 
And so somebody leads him to Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is, but whoever brought him is hoping for help where everyone else has been powerless. And in a moment's time, Jesus heals him. And suddenly, the man can hear, he can speak, and he can see. Most of the people who witnessed this, the text says, were amazed. Now, that word amazed, we use the word amazing about all kinds of things. It's more than that. Maybe a better translation would be they were astonished. They were stupefied. They were dumbfounded. They responded by clapping their hand to their mouth. All time stops. You forget everything around you. You've just seen something so wonderful, so outside of your experience that you can only marvel at its power and its beauty. They were astonished. After the astonishment subsides, they think about what they just witnessed, and it makes them wonder. Could this man, who just performed this miracle, be the Messiah, the promised son of David, our true king sent by God to deliver us? So words out. This man who does miracles like this may be the promised king returning to save God's people. This presents the Pharisees with a major problem. They can't deny the miracle. But if they follow the crowd's logic, they're in big trouble. See, they lose their authority and the respect everyone has given them if Jesus truly is the Son of God, the the King sent into the world to save God's people. Jesus teaches the law totally different from what the Pharisees teach. Jesus hangs out with people the Pharisees have told you, you need to avoid. If Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is God's King, then the Pharisees are yesterday's burnt toast. So they come up with a response. Sure, Jesus has power. It's demonic power. He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So we have a miracle, and we have two very different responses to the miracle. That leads us to the next stage in our text. Number two, Jesus' defense of his ministry in verses 25 through 29. Jesus defends himself. Jesus could have blown the Pharisees off and let the miracle speak for itself. I mean, how how do you argue with what you just saw? Instead, he makes a reasoned case for why their accusation does not hold up to scrutiny. Okay, so he's, he's patiently saying, okay, Pharisees, let's look at the accusation you've made against me and let's explore whether this is actually a possibility or not. First in verses 25 and 26, read them with me. 
Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, Jesus assumes that we all agree that Satan is trying to increase the reach of his kingdom. And we all agree that blindness and muteness are a work of the kingdom of darkness. So for Satan to resist his own work is ludicrous, just on the face of it. It's dumb, stupid. Why do that? Then Jesus makes another argument. Look at verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In Jesus' day, there were other Jewish exorcists. That's a person who casts out demons, and he's called an exorcist. And there were other exorcists in Israel in Jesus' day. So why wouldn't the argument that slandered Jesus' miracle slander them as well? We actually have records. You can read about other Jewish exorcists in Jesus' day. Uh, One scholar, his name is R.T. France, he described their bizarre rituals, which were extremely elaborate, with usually mixed results. But they were seeking to help and reverse the works of darkness. Do the Pharisees want to lodge the same charge against them? So Jesus says, they'll be your judge. Maybe you should ask them. Third, in verse 28, let's read that now. Jesus said, this is his third argument. But if if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If, in fact, Jesus did his miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has... In other words, the kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is reversing the works of darkness. And that leads us back. When Jesus uses that word kingdom, that leads us back to the question, is Jesus the king? Is Jesus the king sent by God? Is he the son of David? This is the very conclusion the Pharisees have been trying to resist. If Jesus displaces Satan's kingdom, he displaces the Pharisees' kingdom as well. And then Jesus' last argument in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Here Jesus is using a metaphor. He's making a comparison. If you want to break into a strong man's house and steal his stuff, you're going to have to restrain the strong man first. That only makes sense. But what's the comparison? What is the comparison Jesus is making? He's comparing the man who is blind and mute with someone who is the possession of Satan. Satan has captured him and made him his possession by making him his prisoner. And so Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 49, 
where Isaiah asks a very similar question. Verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Jesus Christ came to liberate the slaves of the most powerful beings, even those who are physically enslaved by demons. He came to rescue. That's why he came. He came to liberate us from the power of sin, from the power of death, from the power of the devil, so that we could become citizens of his kingdom and children in his family. He must first defeat the evil one, rendering him powerless. Then he brings these liberated prisoners to himself so they can live for him. There is no sickness, no blindness, spiritual or physical, no demonically twisted thought or belief or fear that is beyond the liberating power of Jesus Christ. And church, we've got to fix our minds on that and not be overwhelmed when circumstances seem to dictate differently. Verse 30 Point three, third section of our text, the choice before us. Verse 30 is the heart of the passage. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me, scatters. So here, here is the claim of the text. Let's not get distracted by demons and blasphemy. Here's the the whole point. Are you with Jesus? Do you gather with Him? The choice we're given, and this is throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is throughout the New Testament, the choice before us is the choice of a person. The person of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' words and his works force every human being who encounters him to choose. doesn't matter how old you are here today. Jesus Christ has come, and he has come to show you who he is and give you a choice. Will you be with him? Or against him? Will you gather with him? Or will you scatter? The world tries to divide us along all kinds of lines. Male, female, black, white, citizen, immigrant, young, old, liberal, conservative, rich, poor, educated, or kind of dumb. Jesus blows through all of that. Those categories don't mean anything to him. He asks you, are you with me? Are you against me? Do you gather with me? Or do you scatter? 
Once again, the scholar R.T. France writes of this text, Jesus' statement divides humanity simply into two groups. There's no middle ground. To be with him is to see him as he is and respond accordingly. To be with him is to see the son of David, God's chosen king, and to respond as his loyal subject. But what about gathering with him? How does a person do that? And what about scattering? How does a person scatter? Well, to understand that, we have to look at the final portion of our text, which for many is the most difficult. So let's read again the last two verses. Verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, to understand this text and to understand how to interpret it, we've got to start with the first word. What's the first word there? Therefore. Therefore. What Jesus says in verses 22 to 30 lead up to what he's about to say about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, what does it mean to blaspheme? It simply means to speak against someone. That's what Jesus said. He uses the word blaspheme, and then the next line he says to speak against. In the world of Greek speakers, it had a general sense that applied to God and to people. But in the New Testament, the word blaspheme, blasphemer, was used 56 times. 55 of those 56 times were used in reference to God. Let me give you a a definition from the Dictionary of New Testament Theology. Blasphemy against God amounts to words or conduct injurious to God's honor and holiness. So if you speak words that dishonor God, if you speak words that dishonor his holiness, that, that defame him, that take away from him the glory and the honor that is due him, you participate in blasphemy. But in our text today, Jesus doesn't speak broadly of God. He speaks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says if you dishonor the work of the Holy Spirit, your sin is unforgivable. Interestingly, Jesus said, if you speak against me, my person, that can be forgiven but not against the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of confusing. In the Pharisees' response to Jesus' miracle, Jesus says, you can misunderstand me. I look and sound like any other man. But if you speak against the one who did the miracle at my initiative, your blasphemy is unforgivable. Remember, earlier in the text, Jesus refers to the miracle being performed by 
the Holy Spirit. The slander that the Pharisees spoke then is outrageous. It's an outrage on two levels. It's, an out, it's a human outrage and it's a divine outrage. Humanly speaking, it's outrageous to say that this man's healing is a work of Satan. This man has lived his life in a dark and silent misery, unable to see, to hear, to speak. And now all that's been restored to him and he's being told that Satan is the source of his healing. That is outrageous. Outrageous. But this blasphemy is even more outrageous because it slanders God, the Holy Spirit, who is the direct cause of the man's healing. If you look back in chapter 8, verse 29, you find out that even the demons, remember when the demons were sent into the herd of pigs out of the two men who were in the graveyard? Those demons... When they approached Jesus and the two men, what did they say? We know you're the Son of God. Even the demons identify Jesus correctly. And yet here you have these men who are attributing this marvelous work of healing by the Spirit to the Prince of Darkness and Death. Now, here's the question. When you look at verses 31 and 32, is Jesus making a pronouncement on the Pharisees and saying, you guys are finished. You're never going to be forgiven. No more chance. Or is he giving a warning? Now, I think it's a warning. And here's why. Why did he go to the trouble of making four arguments for what they said being wrong? Why did he make those four arguments? Why did he take the time with the Pharisees? So it would seem this is a warning to the Pharisees. It certainly is a warning to me and to you. There seems hope that the Pharisees can turn from this horrible sin they've committed. Now, this is not some obscure text. Okay, we're going through the Matthew, and so we got to cover this one. So somehow it falls to me, and, you know, it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, No, actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this miracle and the Pharisees' slander against Jesus. (laughs) So it's not... It's not like something that it's just, you know, like Mark 16. You just scratch your head and say, I'm not sure. And there are other texts that allude to the same thing. In two sections of the book of Hebrews, we hear similar words to what Jesus said. Listen to this. Hebrews 6, verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, what what I want you to notice from this text 
is he refers to people who have shared in the Holy Spirit. These are people who are church members, who do all the stuff Christians do, yet they can fall away and cannot be restored to repentance. That's what the text says. You know, you can come to church, and I want you children to pay attention to this especially. You can come to church and fall in love with Christianity. You can love the people who are a part of the church, love being with them, love the friendships they offer, love the the safety and the community and the harmony you find in the church. You can love the rules and see that these rules keep your life kind of together. But our text says you can love all those things and not see Jesus and not turn your life and be for him. Hebrews chapter 10 gives a similar warning. It says, people who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Okay, they, they've heard, they understand the gospel. They've heard the gospel. But they just keep on sinning. And they don't care. The writer says, they have trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed. And listen to the last thing. They have outraged the Holy Spirit. So here we have in Matthew 12, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Here we have people who've shared in the Holy Spirit, but fall away. And now we have people who have the knowledge of the truth, but deliberately keep on sinning, outraging the Spirit. We come to new life by the Holy Spirit who reveals to us the Son of God and His work on the cross so that we can believe and then live for and in Him. If we somehow witness His work as the Pharisees did when they saw the blind man and the mute man healed, if we share in the Holy Spirit in that event and refuse to repent of our sins, we outrage the Spirit of grace. And so we permanently exclude ourselves from the forgiveness of sins leading to eternal life. It's hard to wrap your mind about around how all that works. And I don't think it's necessarily because we need to for anybody else but ourselves. Graham Cole summarizes blasphemy in the Holy Spirit this way, quote, the blasphemy against the Spirit is that self-righteous, persistent refusal to embrace the offer of salvation in Christ, his ministry of restoring his father's broken creation. It is to set one's face against the Spirit's testimony to Christ as the Son of Man with the authority to forgive sins. So the blasphemy is against the Spirit because the Spirit gives you this direct sight of who Jesus is, and yet you speak against it, you resist it, you, return, you refuse to submit to this King. Matthew's Gospel is really clear about this. It's not hard to understand the passage that we've just read, this principle as we've just read it. What is hard about the text 
is how we apply Jesus' pronouncement in the world today. So I want to give you three ways to think about the application of this text as you think about our world that we live in. First, I think this text is a warning to each of us for ourselves. Not only not to blaspheme the Lord Jesus in the spirit who reveals him, it's also a warning not to listen to those who do. So that, that's, that's the call on every one of us who has been born again by the spirit of God. Secondly, we are not given the responsibility to pronounce who has committed this sin. Okay, that's, that's not in your job description. Well, he blasphemed the Spirit. I, I saw it myself. Now, we are responsible to practice church discipline. And we are responsible to remove a church member from fellowship if he or she refuses to repent from a sin. But God makes the eternal judgments, not us. And if we do remove a person from fellowship, as you can look in Matthew 18, it's always with the hope that they will be restored to us in repentance. So we don't have to worry about, is this person permanently, eternally unforgiven or not? But then the last thing I want to say, and through my ministry, I have privately spoken with Christians who wonder, did I say something outrageous about Jesus in the past? Did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Am I truly repentant? And this verse can really trouble you. Now, the first thing I always say in those situations, and if you encounter a person like this or you have this fear yourself, first thing I always say is, if you're really worried about this, it's probably not your problem. <laughs> if you want to come to Jesus and please him and you're, you're concerned what I said offended him, I outrage the spirit of grace. There's forgiveness for you. And there's repentance. You can turn. You should not fear. If you long for him, if you seek him, if you confess your sins, there's loads of evidence in your life that there is forgiveness for you. Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit never get to that point in their life. So it's not like they turn around and say, oh, I want back in. And Jesus said, sorry. What you said can't be forgiven. Now, I hope that's clear. I think this text should sober us. I think it should encourage us. Our Lord is not to be slandered. And there's a lot of slander out in the world. I, I decided not the, the slander against Jesus and the Holy Spirit is all over the place. And I, I decided in the sermon not to give any examples. But they are all over the place if you just keep your ears open. And I don't recommend you listen to those slanders. 
our Lord is not to be slandered. He takes his name and his holiness very seriously. Now I want to end the passage with the heart of this sermon, with the heart of the passage, verse 30. Look at it again. Get your eyes on it. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Remember said I was going to get to that and show you how that relates to the end of the text? Jesus invites us to be with him as a person. He doesn't doesn't call us to a religion. He calls us to a person. And our religion is how it it, it informs and helps us and develops habits for us in how to come to him. And then he invites us to gather with him. So the spirit of God joins us to the person of Jesus. We'll never be alone in the world again. We're joined personally to him, personally joined to Jesus Christ by his spirit, and he invites us to participate in his work of gathering. She said, well, what are, we, what are we gathering? Well, we're gathering people. That's what he did in this whole text. The therefore says, I'm gathering people to myself. I'm gathering the blind and the mute. I'm gathering sinners, the alcoholics and the prostitutes and all those people the Pharisees say, stay away from. I'm gathering them in. I'm gathering in all kinds of people. And when you get joined to me, I invite you to participate in that gathering. I invite you to join me. And and how do you participate? Well, you speak of him. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus gave this teaching following the healing of a man who was blind and mute. Remember I said he was probably mute because he was deaf. Couldn't hear, so he couldn't speak. Why does he leave out the deaf part and just say blind and mute? Because that man's physical condition represents our spiritual condition. We can't see Jesus, and so we can't speak about him. And so in verse 30, Jesus is saying, if you see me, you can join with me, and I'll heal your blindness. I'll heal your blindness. You'll be able to see I'm the son of David. I'm the Messiah, the one who's come to save you, to be your king. And if you see him, he simultaneously loosens your tongue. And so you can speak of Jesus. When we are regenerated, we are given sight and a voice. This entire passage is shouting at us. It's saying, look at Jesus. See him for who he is, the son of God, the messianic king. And once you see him, speak about him, proclaim him. We're all blind until the spirit opens our eyes. We're all mute until we see the one to whom we have come and we say what we see. That's, I think, when you put this whole text together, that's where it's bringing us. He came to open our eyes. And he came to open our voice. That we may proclaim 
him and be with him.